Edward is the king, Richard is at his side, and George is in the Tower of London awaiting news of his fate. In this episode of Footnoting History, we continue our story of the Brothers York. Hey everyone, Christine here, with more Wars of the Roses for you. If you're joining us for the first time with this episode, I heavily suggest you stop listening and go back to part one. Otherwise, you might be very lost, because with so much still to cover, I won't be doing a ton of retreading. And if you want a captioned version of this or any episode, you can get it at footnotinghistory.com or youtube.com footnotinghistory. One small bit of news today, too. We are planning our first ever Q&A episode to be released this July. If you have a question relating to podcasting or history or one of our episodes, the time to submit it is now. You can do that by visiting footnotinghistory.com slash Q&A and filling out the little form. We will go through them and pick out enough to fill a full episode. We're excited about that, and we hope you'll send your questions our way. The submission window does close on May 31st. Now, back to the brothers because we've left George, disgraced Duke of Clarence, languishing in the Tower of London for almost two weeks. In reality, George was in the Tower for quite some time. He had crossed and double-crossed Edward too often, and the stunt with reading the executed man's Declaration of Innocence, along with overreaching regarding the execution of poor Anchoret, was just way, way too much. There was, it became clear, no returning from this. In early 1478, George was put on trial for treason. Edward IV was hell-bent on bringing his brother to heel and enraged by his lack of loyalty. He had a whole litany of charges, including that George spread rumors that Edward was a bastard and that he retained records from the brief period when Henry VI was back on the throne that said George could claim the crown if both Henry VI and his son died without male heirs. It was like an eruption of anger after years of putting up with his nonsense. Edward even said that he could have forgiven George for all of his crimes if it wasn't such a constant thing. Enough was enough. George was convicted and executed for treason on February 18th. He was 28. George's death is infamous because of a story that has circulated for a very long time, which claims that he was killed by drowning in a butt of Malmsey wine. We have no extant sources that prove this to be 100% what happened, but the story has been around forever, and we know it was a private execution, so hey, maybe that is how it went down. Whatever the case, Edward had not come to the decision about George lightly. Think about how often he'd forgiven him in the past. And Edward made sure he was respectfully entombed in Tewkesbury Abbey with his wife, Isabel. Although executing his own brother didn't make Edward IV look too great, the years that followed were relatively quiet by comparison. But over the course of Edward's reign, people noted Edward lost his looks. In my mind, he was somewhat like Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones, which isn't a shock since George R.R. Martin was partly inspired by medieval English history. Robert Baratheon was a great soldier who led a successful rebellion and won the throne. Then, when he was on the throne, he gave way to a lot of indulgences and sort of let himself go. Edward also was losing his looks and increasing in weight, often attributed to many years of indulgent living. Although he was still young, just shy of turning 41, Edward IV's health failed him, and he passed away on April 9, 1483, 
which unintentionally coincides with today if you are listening on the day the episode is released. He was buried in St. George's Chapel at Windsor. Although now we know St. George's as a famous royal site for weddings and burials, and one worth visiting because it's gorgeous, at the time it was brand new and of Edward's own creation. He had commissioned the building of this chapel in anticipation of it being where he'd be laid to rest. He got his wish. Another wish that Edward IV had didn't come to fruition in the way he had hoped. Back in 1470, while Edward IV was in exile and fighting to regain the throne, his wife Elizabeth gave birth to their eldest son, also named Edward. We already know that Edward IV got the throne back after that exile. Once that happened, he quickly put things in place to make sure his son was recognized as the next in line. He had the boy made Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester, and he had an oath of allegiance administered so that people would say that little Edward was heir. Prince Edward's household and general life was controlled by a council that included, over time, his mother Elizabeth, her brother Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, Edward IV's brothers George and Richard, and the Bishop of Rochester. There was no question Edward IV was setting his son up for the succession. When Edward IV died, Edward the heir was still a young teen. He was at Ludlow, not with his father, so he had to come down to, presumably, have his coronation. But here's a spoiler alert. Although he is known to history as Edward V, he never had a coronation, he never ruled on his own, and we don't definitively know what happened to him. Instead, the crown would go to his uncle and the last remaining York brother, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, who became King Richard III, one of the most controversial figures in English history. People come to meet Richard III from a lot of different avenues, and in the U.S. anyway, most of them probably aren't history classes. He's a famous, or rather infamous, villain in a Shakespeare play from the Tudor era, allegedly with a hunchback and withered limb. He's more sympathetically treated by novelists like Josephine Tay and Sharon K. Penman. In fact, it was Penman's novel The Sun and Splendor which really got me interested in this time period. The Richard III Society loves him. Tudor fans usually don't. My point with all of this is to say that if you ask four different people, you all get four different opinions on the man. I know you can say that for anyone in history or currently living, but I feel like with Richard III, it jumps to a whole different level. It's no secret that Richard III is my second favorite English king to Henry II, but while writing this, I've done my best to be even-handed and present what we do know more than all the speculation. This way, hopefully, you can decide how you feel about him, or jump to my further reading list and do a deeper dive yourself to get more of the historical arguments for both the positive and negative depictions of Richard III. But before we continue, I need to address one major recurring question in Ricardian discourse. Was Richard III a hunchback like Shakespeare says in his play, Richard III? Now that we have his bones, we know that he suffered from scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine. But that doesn't mean he fits Shakespeare's posthumous dramatic description. According to the case report on Richard's spine created by the University of Leicester, he likely only had a slight disfigurement, with his right shoulder a bit higher than the left and his torso short compared to the length of his arms and legs. The research team stated, quote, a good tailor and custom-made armor could have minimized the visual impact of this, end quote. They further said that his leg bones were well-formed, and so he would not have had any kind of a limp. As someone who also has severe scoliosis, I feel solidarity with him. If you saw an x-ray of my back, you'd say what the doctor said, which was, how the hell are you standing upright? I have uneven shoulders, I am considered short-torsoed, but I don't have a hunchback or a limp, and most people can't tell unless they study me. 
So yeah, I had to talk about it because I feel a strong connection to that aspect of his reputation. Anyway, as we already know, when Edward IV died, Richard became the only surviving brother in the family. The vast majority of his childhood was spent living in that uncertainty that comes with being part of a lengthy battle for the throne. When Edward first became Edward IV, Richard wasn't even 10 years old, but he was given the title Duke of Gloucester. He didn't really prominently enter into the political world until the time when Edward IV was dealing with the rebellion of Warwick and George. Although he had been entrusted to Warwick's care for part of his childhood, it was common practice for boys of his societal level to get a bit of training and life experience living in noble households different from their parents, he sided 100% with Edward IV. He even fought on the battlefield for Edward in the clash that killed Henry VI's heir. When Edward gave Richard land and power in the north, he was putting an extension of his own power in that region, one that had, at turns, held Lancastrian and Warwick supporters. Richard ended up earning a lot of loyalty of his own up there, so much so that it's speculated he'd hoped to be buried in York. His wife, as you know from other episodes, was Anne Neville, and together they had one son, called Edward. Richard was Edward IV's super close, trusted associate, and when he passed away suddenly, Richard became the last prominent member of the House of York standing. Since Richard was in the North at the time, he had to make his way to London, as we know also did Edward IV's eldest son and heir, who was with his maternal uncle. A child king is always an opportunity for people who are older and stronger to try and force themselves into the game, and those who control the child king control everything. The late king's intentions for who would preside over his son's minority rule are unclear. Unfortunately, the whole rest of this period is filled with conflicting narratives, lack of substantial evidence, and centuries of opinions based on little that is actually provable. But as always, I will do my best to focus on what we do know. On his way down to London, Richard intercepted his nephew and became his escort, arresting Edward V's Woodville uncle, the Earl Rivers, and his close associates in the process. The news of this reached the widowed queen, Elizabeth Woodville, and she took her remaining children into sanctuary. Then, the royal council nominated and confirmed Richard as protector of the crown. It was decided that a coronation for the new king would happen in a few weeks. Richard, meanwhile, was dealing with a few things. One of them was that Edward IV had left almost no money for the crown to use. It was so little that they didn't know how they'd pay for a coronation, and at least once Richard contributed his own money to the coffers for the royal household. Nevertheless, coronation planning continued apace. In early June, Richard revealed that a plot against him was uncovered, with William Lord Hastings, one of Edward IV's besties, as a part of it. Others were arrested and ultimately Richard had Hastings executed. Soon after, Elizabeth Woodville agreed to send her second son, Richard, to live with his brother, Edward V, under our Richard's care. At the same time, the intended coronation for Edward V was pushed off to November. Around now, it got brought to light that Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville wasn't on the up and up. Edward, it was said, had a pre-contract with another woman, but married Elizabeth anyway. This not only rendered their marriage fraudulent, but also meant that his children with Elizabeth were illegitimate. If that was true, then Edward V's claim to the throne all but evaporated and could be very easily challenged, leading to unrest and more warfare. As a result, Richard chose to take the crown himself, becoming King Richard III. There are multiple ways to interpret what happened here. Some will tell you that all the fuss was a fabrication because Richard couldn't wait to throw his nephew aside and be king. 
Others, who are more sympathetic to Richard, will say that he was genuinely scared about what would happen to a weak crown and thought the best way to prevent this was by taking the crown himself. On July 6th, Richard's coronation was held. It was immediately followed by a progress through the country. The progress ended with a fantastic entrance into the city of York and ceremonies involving himself, his wife Anne, and their son Edward that were so magnificent they have been dubbed an unofficial second coronation. It was, at least by those in the north, received well, and was probably the high mark of his reign. In real time, it probably felt like things were happening at warp speed. It was less than a month from when Richard was having meetings about paying for his nephew's coronation to when he became king himself. Almost immediately, there was trouble, including a rebellion which involved Richard's former supporter, the Duke of Buckingham. Although it was suppressed, it was a clear signal of more to come. Why Buckingham went from friend to foe is one of those questions that has long been debated, but we cannot answer with extreme certainty. It was still certainly a blow to Richard. Plus, this time saw the emergence of Henry Tudor as a leader of the opposition. Henry Tudor had a claim to the throne, it was true, but it was a weak one compared to the other claimants we've discussed. After King Henry V died, his wife Catherine was with Owen Tudor, and Henry Tudor's father came from that line. On the other side, Henry Tudor was related back to Edward III because his mother, Margaret Beaufort, was a descendant of Edward III's son, John of Gaunt, and his mistress-turned-third wife. These ties to the crown were tenuous at best, but in this case, they were enough to get some support. At the end of 1483, Henry Tudor declared that if he became king, he would legitimize himself by marrying Elizabeth of York, the eldest daughter of Edward IV. As it would join the Yorkist line and the Lancaster-Tudor line, some people liked the idea. How did Richard handle all of this? He put people who were loyal to him, remember the North was his area, in charge of places where people might not be loyal to him in hopes of fixing it. That didn't work, though, because the people didn't like having outsiders brought into their regions and taking over. Further, Richard has spent his whole life dealing with plots and conspiracies, even from his own brother George. He was rarely comfortable with anyone and increasingly leaned on his northern-based inner circle that he trusted, giving way to the phrase, the cat, the rat, and Lovell our dog, rule all England under the hog. The cat, the rat, and Lovell our dog are William Catesby, Richard Ratcliffe, and Francis Viscount Lovell, Richard's closest associates, and the hog refers to Richard III's badge of a white boar. Some, it seemed, didn't like being ruled by a man so tied to the North, which meant he was unseating the usual power structure of high-ranking Southerners enjoying close proximity to the throne. In 1484, since we talked about other reburials last time, I must note that Richard had the late King Henry VI's remains removed from the Abbey, and they were brought for a proper burial at St. George's Chapel, Windsor, where Edward IV was, further establishing it as a royal burial site. Still, this year wasn't kind to him. In April, his only legitimate son, Edward, passed away, which left him without an heir. With Henry Tudor still a major threat, Richard increased contact with Elizabeth Woodville, and she allowed her daughters to leave the sanctuary and enter Richard's care. Richard and Anne treated them very kindly, creating at least something of a united front. But in March of 1485, Richard suffered another personal blow. His wife Anne passed away. This made his already shaky life even sadder and shakier. He tried to find a new wife, then rumors started claiming he wanted to marry his niece Elizabeth of York, though there were too many reasons it was a bad idea for me to believe it was ever a serious consideration. 
Richard even went so far as to publicly state that he didn't plan to marry her, which was important for his supporters to hear, and as it went, Richard never remarried. In August of 1485, King Richard III led his troops into battle against Henry Tudor, who had launched an invasion on England. The two forces met at what is now known as the Battle of Bosworth, or Battle of Bosworth Field. For Richard, this was probably a great opportunity because he commanded a superior army to Henry's. He was a good and experienced soldier, and if it was decisive, he could put things to rest. For a time, it looked like Richard III could win, and his troops got close enough to Henry Tudor, who did not personally lead his troops, while Richard III did, to cause worry. The Earl of Northumberland, who Richard was counting on, did not engage his troops when he was needed for unknown reasons, whether it was a personal choice or he was somehow prevented. Plus, long-established, fervent Yorkist William Stanley, who was actually Henry Tudor's step-uncle, threw in his lot with the Tudor side. These turns heavily influenced Richard's defeat, and he was killed in the fray. He was 32 years old, and is the last English king to pass away on the battlefield. Thus, we lose the last of our brothers. As I just said, Richard III was the last English king to die in battle, and he is considered the last king of the Plantagenet line. Henry Tudor became Henry VII. He did marry Edward IV's daughter, Elizabeth of York. They established the Tudor line that included Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, and Elizabeth I. The Tudor rose is both red and white to show the merging of both sides of the Wars and the Roses. The Yorkist cause, though, did not immediately die out, and pretenders rose, with at least one claiming to be a lost son of Edward IV, though no attempts succeeded at overthrowing Henry Tudor. Richard III was buried at Greyfriars in Leicester, which no longer exists and is now, as the news loves to note, a parking lot. His remains weren't discovered until 2012, and they were positively identified in 2013. He has since been given a proper ceremonial reinterment in Leicester Cathedral. This turn of events made my Yorkist heart, so long resigned to the idea that we might never know where he was buried, very happy. The remaining legitimate descendants of the brothers York had a variety of fates. George, Duke of Clarence, left two children behind when he was executed. Eventually, they both also died by execution. George's son Edward was kept in the Tower of London and executed in 1499 under Henry VII, following the discovery that he was associated with a pretender and attempted to escape. George's daughter Margaret was active in the Tudor court, marrying and having a family of her own, but she was executed in 1541, largely because of her son Reginald's open resistance to Henry VIII's move to leave the Catholic Church. Edward IV's remaining children were all daughters, Cecily, Anne, Catherine, and Bridget. Cecily, Anne, and Catherine were all found well-placed husbands during the reign of Henry VII, their brother-in-law, with Cecily's coming after her prior marriage to one of Richard III's allies was annulled. Bridget, meanwhile, never married and became a nun. This all leads to our last topic. What happened to the so-called princes in the tower, also known as Edward IV's sons, Edward V, and Richard? As much as I wish I could break the history world by being the person with a definitive answer, I cannot. The truth is that we simply do not know and probably won't ever know. Although everyone who studies the period is likely to form an opinion, even the most confident person is actually only making an educated guess because extant source material offering any undeniable proof simply does not exist. We do know, though, that the princes stopped being seen around the same time that their uncle became King Richard III. People wondered where the princes were, and for years, rumors spread about whether or not they were alive. 
early in the reign of King Henry VII, uncertainty regarding the fate of the two princes allowed a pretender, known to us as Perkin Warbeck, to emerge claiming to be Richard, the younger of Edward IV's sons, though his attempt at being a rival to be reckoned with ultimately failed. As the Tudor period progressed, the deaths of the princes were placed more frequently at the feet of Richard III and his associates, with perhaps the most famous non-theatrical example being Sir Thomas More's History of Richard III. Still, just because something is being said more frequently doesn't mean it's true, and there are an extraordinary number of questions surrounding Edward and Richard's fates and multiple common theories about what happened. Interestingly, as historian Matthew Lewis recently pointed out in a debate about this very topic with Nathan Amin, Elizabeth Woodville never openly accused Richard III of killing her sons that we know of. Plus, she entrusted her daughters to him well after her sons had disappeared from public eye. Since she was in sanctuary, why would she send them out to a dangerous place if she believed their lives could be ended? Even after Richard died, there is no record that she accused him of murdering them. There's also Elizabeth of York, who became Henry Tudor's queen when he took the throne as Henry VII. She never accused her uncle of killing her brothers either, and she certainly could have. It is not like he was there to defend himself, and it would remove possible suspicion from her own husband. That said, if Richard III had the boys alive, why didn't he show them in public? And if they lived to the reign of Henry VII, why didn't he also bring them out? It certainly would have shut people up if one of them proved they were still alive. But it also would have reminded people that there were other options and created instability. These were times where the crown changed hands more often than any part had wanted, and reminding people that there were other alternatives, well, both Richard III and Henry VII would have had reasons for not wanting the boys around, particularly when you consider, as we said in part one, having a former king and or strong claimant to the throne kicking around when you're trying to rule makes things ripe for trouble. But both men also knew how terrible it would look if they were the ones to get rid of the innocent young man. Richard would be killing his nephews, and Henry would be killing his brothers-in-law. Does this mean one of them didn't decide it was necessary? Of course not. Does it mean it had to be one of them? Also no. We mentioned the Duke of Buckingham earlier, and how he went from ally to foe. What exactly caused that? We don't know. Did it have anything to do with the princes? Maybe he killed them against Richard's wishes. Maybe Richard had them killed and Buckingham didn't approve. His name has been connected as a possible murderer for centuries, but maybe it was something different altogether. And what about Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort? What if she arranged for the murder? We know that her son rose up as the primary rival to Richard III, close in time to when the princess disappeared from sight. Did she have something to do with it? And then, of course, there is also the possibility that either one or both of them survived somewhere, or one or both of them died of natural causes at any point along the way. The lack of definitive information is certainly frustrating, and it's something I've thought about for a long time. For me, it always seems to come back to Henry Stafford, better known to you in this episode as the Duke of Buckingham. But as I said before, all we can do is form educated guesses. So then, we must close with one final question. What do you think happened to the princes? Thank you for joining me for this two-part exploration of the lives of the Brothers York. I hope you enjoyed this tip of the Wars of the Roses iceberg. If you want to look at my further reading suggestions for this extremely complex period, please visit footnotinghistory.com. It's sure to offer you a variety of opinions about everyone we've discussed in the last two episodes. And whatever you do, don't forget, the best stories are in the footnotes. <laughs>